हेलो फ्रेंड्स गुड इवनिंग नाउ वी आर गोइंग टू रीड टुगेदर अ बुक एथिक्स वेरी शॉर्ट इंट्रोडक्शन वी हैव विच वी हैव स्टार्टेड थ्री फोर डेज एगो रिटन बाय साइमन ब्लैकबर्न पब्लिश बाय ऑक्सफर्ड एंड द लास्ट और थर्ड पार्ट ऑफ दिस बुक is foundations we have already seen two parts and this is the last one foundations it is time to pick up some unfinished business in part 1 i try to deflect some of the hostile thoughts many people voice about ethics but we had to acknowledge the threat of relativism and nihilism and skepticism we might still fear that the voice of conscience is a delusion we might still founder when we try to gain some sense of its authority are truth and knowledge possible or does reasoning about what to do eventually hinge on nothing but brute will or are there yet other alternatives So point sixteen. Reasons and foundations. Suppose we imagine an ordinary, everyday reason for acting. The everyday reason might be I wanted it or I liked him, so I did something for him, or that's what will make the most money. a reason might be narrowly selfish or it might be highly admirable it helps to promote the greatest happiness of the greatest number or it delivers people from horrendous pains and miseries these last two would be the reasons benevolent people offer for actions these reasons can be appealing if our sympathies lie in the same direction we will appreciate them and accept them they work in many conversations but there is no proof that they have to work it seems to depend how much the audience sympathizes with us or with humanity or feels the same way as us it seems to depend on our feelings or sentiments and feelings or sentiments are not on the face of it capable of proof something much grander would be a reason that everyone must acknowledge to be a reason independently of their sympathies and inclinations i shall call that a reason with the capital letter it would arm lock everyone you could not ignore it or discount it just because you felt differently it would have a necessary influence or or what philosophers sometimes call apodictic force it would blind uh, sorry it would bind all rational agents in so far as they are rational if you offer someone a reason here no capital letter 
and they shrug it off you might say they are insensitive or inhuman callous or selfish imprudent or sentimental these are defects of the heart you may regret them but you may not be able to prove to the audience that they are defects at all but if you offer someone a capital letter reason and they shrug it off then something different then something different is wrong their very rationality is in jeopardy there is a something wrong with their head if they cannot see things that just stand to reason philosophers of course are professionally wedded to reasoning so it is nat- so it is natural to them to hope that we can find reasons before the 18th century many moral philosophers thought that we could they thought that uh, fundamental principles of ethics could be seen to be true by the natural light of reason the principles had the same kind of certainty as arithmetic or geometry you could see from your armchair that they had to be true they were innate or self evident for many they were prescribed for us by a benevolent uh, for a benevolent deity that uh, so that ignoring them would be a kind of impiety by the end of the 17th century this theory had lost a lot of ground especially among philosophers more ready to trust imperial sense experience as a source of knowledge than allegedly divine revelation if we want proba- probability it began to be felt we cannot rely on god to have put it there but even the great imperi- empiricist john lock 1632 to 1704 sorry subscribe to a rational foundation for the basic principles of morals i doubt not but for self evident propositions uh, by necessary consequences as or uh, incontestable as those in mathematics the measures of right and wrong might be made out to anyone that will apply himself with the same or uh, indifferency and attention to the one as uh, he does to the other of the sciences lock thought this was something that could in principle be done rather than something that had already been done this view was swept away in the 18th century first by the uh, sentimentalist the earl of uh, shafts shaftsbury 16 or 71 to 1713 and france and francis hudson 1694 to 1746 but then with much greater force by david hume who took a deep view of the power of reason anywhere but especially here for hume reason's proper sphere is confined to mathematics and logic while knowledge about the way things are is due solely to sense experience neither affords us any substantive principles of conduct there are no reasons hume drives the message home uh, flamboyantly this not contrary to reason to prefer the destruction of the whole world to the scratching of my finger 
is not contrary to uh, to reason for me to choose my total ruin to prevent the least uneasiness of an Indian or person wholly unknown to me. This as little contrary to reason or to prefer even my own acknowledged lesser good to my greater. In other words, human reason has a limited domain. It includes mathematics and logic for if we try to disobey their laws, thought itself becomes impossible. We are left with no ideas at all. And we can talk of the reasonable or scientific approach to understanding the world. But when it comes to ethics, we are in the domain of preference and choice. And here, reason is silent. <coughs> Sorry. The heart or what Hume called passion or sentiment rules everything of course our passions and sentiments need to operate in the world that uh, we learn about ignorance is a recipe for acting disastrously both to ourselves and to others but what the heart suggests we do after reason and experience have found uh, where we are in another thing even basic unambitious concerns such as the solidarity with others or the respect for rules that were defended in sections 12 and 13 depend on sympathy and that sympathy is not mandated by reason alone the plight of others gives us reasons to act certainly but not reasons there may perhaps be some formal limits on our preferences there is a something irrational about preferring a to b and also um, and also at the same uh, same time preferring b to a although it is often all right to be in two minds about things but there are no substantive restrictions on our passions imposed by reason alone this could be put in terms of a contrast between uh, description and prescription. Reason is involved in getting our descriptions of the world right, but what, what we then prescribe is beyond its jurisdiction. Reason is in fact wholly at the service of the passions. It is just because we must act in the world that we need to know about it. Reason is an out only to be the slave of the passions and can never pretend to any other office than to serve and obey them. 17. Being good and living well. As we touched upon in section 11, Aristotle thought that the telos or goal of a human being is to live a certain kind of law, uh, sorry, to, to live a certain kind of life. But what kind of life? Obviously, one in which certain basic biological needs for food, warmth, shelter and, and perhaps sex are met. Sex gets qualification because you don't die from lacking it. Aristotle, however, managed to equate the intended life for a human being with the virtuous life. He also connected it with life lived according to reason and this may seem to give us a kind of foundation for ethics. The vicious or, or depraved or insensitive or callous are failing to exercise reason, the supreme human capacity. But first of all, why think that the intended or natural life for human beings is a life of virtue? On the face of it, this equation requires a pretty sunny view of the human animal. We need not subscribe to a grand unifying pessimism to fear that evolution has thrown up a human nature with significant elements of selfishness, uh, sorry, of selfishness 
aggression, sh short sightedness, cruelty, and so forth. And uh, some fairly nas nasty people are healthy to judge by what the contemporary philosopher Bernard Williams um, nicely describes as the ethological standard of the bright eye and the gleaming coat. Conversely, there may be circumstances one could think in which virtue requires us to sacrifice something of our health or happiness at the limit virtue and duty may require us to lay down life itself. So there is a no automatic alignment between uh, behaving well and looking after ourselves. Aristotle himself uh, was not quite as optimistic uh, as optimistic as it might sound. He emphasized that it takes education and practice in order to become virtuous. It does not just happen like growing taller or hairier. Uh, but the education is a matter of drawing out a latent potential at least in the best people. Aristotle is an elitist. The tradition that follows Aristotle is sometimes called the tradition of virtue ethics. It uh, heroically tries to squeeze together what is natural for people, a life lived according to reason, a happy life and a virtuous life. Its main device is the social nature of the self. Within society, the nave or, or villain uh, cannot generally flourish either in the eyes of others or ultimately in his own eyes. The life of injustice is apt to be a life of care and insecurity. If someone pr uh, pr prospers by thieving uh, or cheating, his prosperity, uh, his prosperity is likely to turn to ashes. Perhaps this is likely, but it is not at all certain. Still, it is good to notice that for many purposes, that may be enough. A general correlation uh, between an agent's lapse from virtue and her decline from flourishing is enough for some purposes. It is enough, for instance, for the purpose of the educator with the subject's interest at heart. The educator will not uh, uh, countenance a habit of uh, uh, fingle, fingling or, uh, or lying or, or taking op opportunistic advantage of others. Since these things generally diminish the agent's well-being, we should educate people for whom we care into the habits that are most likely to benefit them and on this account this will be the paths of virtue generally speaking people do well by doing good or at least by avoiding doing bad so far so good but it is surely a mistake to think that an equation between living as we would wish and living virtuously is somehow written into things by nature insofar as it is a it is approximately true it is because it is written into things by culture it is in the first place an educational and also political achievement and one that needs constant attention this is for at least three reasons first it takes education to instill into the subject the sense of respect and self-respect which will turn a profit made by selling his soul into a loss a sufficiently barefaced villain just won't care. Second, it takes a secure and stable political or social system to generate bad effects on the villain, such as loss due to discovery or loss of reputation. When things are in flux, the villain will be able to cheat and move on. Uh, 
Uh, third, it takes a culture or politics properly to identify a lapse from virtue in uh, from from virtue in any case. To say this last point, turn to our examples of oppressed oppressive societies. Suppose women systematically lack opportunities and resources that the men have. Men and women in such a society may not be conscious of anything wrong here. They have internalized the traditional values. Their conception of a woman flourishing will be that she is a nicely subservient or obedient to the men. In such a world, the man oppressing the women has uh, no bad conscience and suffers no loss of respect from those he cares about, mainly other men. He can flourish in his own eyes and in his friend's eyes and even in the eyes of the women. The case would be more obvious if we took uh, behavior towards people outside the community. We have already mentioned the tree that uh, flourishes by depriving other trees of light and uh, the western white pe the western white person who flourishes uh, because of the economic and educational deprivations of people including children in the third world it takes something more than a desire to flourish to motivate concern for them we may measure uh, our flourishing only among us to ourselves the modern aristotelian less inclined uh, sorry, less inclined to 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 discount inferior uh, inferiors and outsiders than Aristotle himself can fight back. She can say that such uh, uh, such cases need a sustaining by rationalizations, and these rationalizations will mainly consist in lies, the privilege to tell themselves, and we already considered that a life lived amidst lies, or you know. Or, or in a fool's paradise is a not a flourishing like life so the ingredients are there to suggest that real flourishing or true human health implies justice it implies improve uh, it implies removing the oppression and leaving so that we can look other people even outsiders in the eye However, this need for rationalizations is itself not a given. Sometimes as we go our careless ways, we do not even seem to need lies to sustain us. Our generation may flourish by consuming all the world's resources and letting the future go hand. We do not tell ourselves a story according to which the generations to come are inferior to us and deserve to inherit a, a dead-end uh, world we just don't think about it it is only when we have to have a conversation with the dispossessed that we uh, that we uh, scramble for rationalization are we being unreasonable as we discount or forget about dispossessed outsiders we are certainly failing in benevolence and uh, we may be failing in justice more on this below but uh, but even if we concede much to the aristotelian argument we might remain pessimistic about its effect insofar as it works by pumping up what is required for a life of reason or a life of true flourishing we will find people perfectly ready to settle for a good fit but better to buy the cheap running shoes and not to think too much about how they were made to unsettle such people we will need eventually to look further at the motivation to just uh, to no sorry at the motivation to justice uh, 18th point the categorical uh, imperative 
Hume's challenge to reasons was taken up by Immanuel Kant. We can approach Kant's views by thinking of a common gambit in practical discussion. When we try to stop people acting in some way, a good question is often, what if everybody did that? The test is sometimes called a universalization test. If the answer is that something would go especially wrong if everybody did that, then we are supposed to feel badly about doing it. Perhaps, for instance, we would be claiming an exemption for ourselves that we couldn't allow to people in general. Kant picked up the universalization test and ran with it. In his hands, it became not only a particular argument within ethics, a device, as it were, for making people think twice or feel guilty, but the in indispensable basis for ethics. <coughs> Sorry. It became the foundation stone for ethics, grounding, grounding ethics in reason alone. It gives us reasons even in the domain of prescriptions or imperatives. He unveils the way this happens in his short masterpiece, The Groundwork of the Metaphysics of Morals of 1785, a work that has probably inspired more love and hatred and more passionate commentary than any other in the history of moral philosophy. The universalization test can sound like a version of the golden rule, uh, do as you would be done by. A rule sometimes claimed by Christianity as its own but found in some form in almost every ethical tradition, including that of, that of uh, Confucius of uh, 551 to 4479 BC. Kant denies that his idea is just that of the golden rule. It is supposed to have more meat. He points out, for example, that the golden rule can be mis misapplied. A criminal can throw it at a judge, asking him how he, how he would like it if he, uh, if he were being sentenced, yet the sentence may be just for all that. A person in good circumstances may, may gladly agree that others should not uh, benefit uh, him if he could be excused from benefiting them. He apparently abides by the golden rule, so something with more structure is needed. Kant starts by distinguishing what he wants to talk about from what he calls talents of the mind, such as understanding, wit, or judgment, and from advantages of temperament, such as courage, or uh, perseverance, or even benevolence. He also distinguishes it from gifts of fortune, happiness, and even admirable qualities, such as moderation. Oh, sorry, moderation. Uh, none of these are good in themselves, for all of them can be misused or can be lamented. Even happiness is not admirable if it is the happiness of a villain. Benevolence may lead us astray, letting other people enjoy what they have no right to enjoy, for example. And the very coolness of a scoundrel makes him not only far, far more dangerous, but also immediately more uh, abominable in our eyes than we could have taken him to be without it. The only thing good in itself then is a good will. Even if the agent with the goodwill is handicapped by a special uh, disfavor of destiny or by the uh, niggardly endowment of uh, stepmotherly nature from actually doing much good in the world, still, if he has a goodwill, it will shine like a jewel from its own sake. But 
what is a good will can considers cases of people doing good things things that might even be their duty not however from a sense of duty but from other inclinations such as self interest or even benevolence or a sense of vanity a salient example is a shopkeeper who does not overcharge an an or uh, inexperienced customer but only because his self interest is served by not doing so perhaps he calculates that the customer is more likely to return or that his shop will profit from a good reputation the shopkeeper behaves honestly enough but not because he has the right feeling that he ought to do so there is no jewel shining by itself here this is a this is not the good will in operation so what is the shape of the answer becomes clear from such examples the good will is one acting from a particular good motive as it is one acting out of a sense of law or duty duty is the necessity of an action from respect for law we are able to represent laws of action in ourselves and a good will is one that acts in accordance with that representation the core of morality then lies not in what we do but in our motives in doing it when moral worth is at issue what counts is not actions which one sees but those inner principles of action that one does not see this is all very well we might see can't seems uh, can't seems to be praising up the uh, conscientious uh, agent or the agent of principle or righteousness or rectitude this is a person who once he thinks such and such is a duty is a strong minded or principled enough not to be deflected uh, from doing it this is in some respects and in my rebel psychology although it is also one that can do a lot of harm since people's consciences can be as perverted as anything else one wonders why why righteousness in this sense is exempt from the criticism leveled at benevolence and the rest that it can be a bad thing some writers also remind us that in many of life situations rectitude is not what we want we often want people to act out of love or gratitude not out of duty good parents take that take their child to an entertainment because they enjoy the child's pleasure a parent who takes the child out of a sense of duty is to that extent lacking a lover who kisses out of a sense of duty is due for the boot but this is not a fundamental criticism of kant he can and does allow this allow uh, dimensions in which uh, the good hearted parent or lover or benefactor scores highly it is just that these are not for him the moral dimensions moral excellence is found only in the strength of the sense of duty there is a, there is a more fundamental difficulty kant's answer seems to demand that uh, certain things got onto a list of duties in the first place it is uh, no good saying act from a sense of duty if when asked the question and what is my duty the only reply is to act from a sense of duty we have to break out of the circle somewhere and so far we do not know how so how is it all going to get us nearer to the foundations kant promises his move is breathtaking breathtaking uh, both in its speed and its result but what kind of law can that be the representation of which must determine uh, the will even without regard for the effect expected from it in order for the will to be called good absolutely and without limitation 
since i have deprived the will of uh, every impulse that that could arise for for it from obeying some law nothing is left but the conformity of actions as such with the universal law which alone is to serve the will as its principle that is i ought never to act except in such a way that i could also uh, will that my maxim should become a universal law this is the famous categorical imperative or more accurately the categorical imper imperative in its first form the so called formula of universal law later on kant glosses it uh, in other ways one is act as if the maximum of your action were to become by your will a universal law of nature the formula of the law of nature another possibly the most influential is so act that you use humanity whether in your own person or in the person of any other always at the same time as an end never merely as a means the formula of humanity it is not at all clear that these different versions can be derived one from the other but can't regarded them as somehow equivalent the promise is that we have here both quite substantial moral principles or versions of the one principle and principles that have been proved by reason alone this last claim is hard to make good but perhaps the idea goes like this as uh, hume illustrates we might suppose that uh, there are no reasons in the area of ethics just the desires or wills of particular persons not necessarily shared or respected by anyone else but kant replies that the very formal nature of the categorical imperative gives it a universal authority you cannot flaunt it and defend your principally in doing so if you do flaunt it you declare yourself to be unreasonable if this is right we have the required foundation ethics comes from reasons alone unfortunately when it comes to applications of the principle uh, principle things become a little sti uh, stickier the most pursue uh, pursuive examples of the categorical imperative doing some real work are cases where where there is an institution whose existence depends on sufficient performance by a sufficient number of people suppose as is plausible uh, plausible that our ability to give and uh, and receive promises depends upon general compliance with the principle of keeping promises were we were we to break them sufficiently often or were promise breaking to become a law of nature then there would be no such thing as a promise giving or promise breaking because no words could any longer have the required force so can't consider somebody whose principle of action is let me when when hard pressed make a promise with the intention not to keep it then uh, says can't i could will i could will the lie but i could not will the uh, universal law to lie for in accordance with such a law there would be no promises at all it would be willing a kind of contradiction so we have a reason against the lying promise that's all very well uh, but consider a person who is against the whole business of uh, giving and receiving promises why shouldn't he try to undermine the uh, the institution from within by giving false promises with one of his uh, aims being the breakdown of trust and cooperation of course a nice or or, or benevolent or even a prudent person wouldn't have that goal but if kant appeals to these virtues 
the purely formal appearance of uh, his theory begins to vanish we only have a reason against giving the give giving the lying promise not a reason an example i like here is the institution of credit cards this depend on enough people not paying them off each month in order to keep profits coming into Mm, uh, the issuing banks so there is a kind of contradiction in imagining a world with credit cards but where everybody pays them off each month suppose my principle is pay off your card wherever you feel like it can i universalize this uh, willing it to govern people in general surprisingly perhaps yes even in a world where people can always offer to uh, pay off their cards we might have it that everyone pays off their cards uh when when they feel like it this could be true provided uh, they don't often feel like it for uh, for instance because for most people most of the time the urge to consume is greater than the urge to save so on the rare occasions when someone feels like paying the card off in full she can go ahead and uh, do so without uh, without falling fall of the categorical imperative similarly then a person can consistently adapt principles of the kind lie or break a promise or steal or cheat on taxes whenever the situation uh, is this serious provided the situation isn't very often that serious the institutions survive and so do the possibilities for making exceptions a third limitation appears if we consider the man mentioned above who misapplies the golden rule saying that he does not mind others refraining from benefiting him provided he can be excused from benefiting them kant's only argument that he fails the categorical imperative test is that he might get into dire straits in which he needs the assistance of others but uh, this evidently invites the uh, all too human rejoinder uh, that he might not and is willing to take the risk he can will uh, that uh, he can will that uh, nobody help anybody else because he can gamble on staying self self sufficient can't descend somewhat uh, from the abstract heights of the formula of universal law version of the categorical imperative he argues in effect that the capacity of human beings to act in accordance with the imperative the jewel within it uh, uh, sorry is itself a thing of absolute unconditional value it is true he thinks that we can never be sure that we are acting from our sense of duty alone since our motives are often mixed and often hidden from us but at least we can set ourselves to do so we can distance ourselves from our um, mundane desires and wishes and set ourselves to act as duty requests this capacity itself gives us our fundamental title to respect and self respect uh, we are proud of our reasoning in 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 fact whenever we offer reasons we are showing how much we respect reason in ourselves so it deserves respect wherever it is found that is within all rational agents this argument or something like it the ta- the text are dense takes kant to the formula of uh, humanity so act that you use humanity whether in your own person or in the person of any other always at the same time as an aim never merely as a means it is not of course easy to see exactly what this involves but the general idea of remembering to respect each other is clearly attractive and perhaps more practicable uh, sorry more more practicable 
than remembering to love each other whether we deserve respect purely because of our capacity to make loss to ourselves is a good deal less so don't perhaps we deserve respect from each other insofar as we are like each other in a whole mass of ways the raiding party bent on enslaving a rival group has forgot has forgotten a shared humanity which includes a shared capacity to love and suffer and hope and fear and remember it hasn't only forgotten that the that the victims can reason according to general rules many people think kant offers the best possible attempt to find reasons and therefore to justify ethics on the basis of reason alone since many people want such an attempt to succeed and fear the result if it does not there are major intellectual industries of trying to find ever more complicated interpretations of the approach that make it work it might be doubted whether this does much service to kant he was a great democrat and believed that the necessity of the categorical imperative was easily visible to any reasoning creature Thank you thank